The song of preparation for the sermon is one that we typically sing seated because the idea of this song is to get your spirit and soul ready to hear the word of God. This song is not only a favorite of this congregation, it's a favorite of many of you. This song emerged as one of the many African-American spirituals that have come to us over the ages. But this one speaks particularly to many people because, because it puts into words the idea that what we have in God is the most valuable thing we will ever have. And so this prayer, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all the world, but give me Jesus. There are days we mean that more than others, but there is no day that is not true. You can have all the world, and yet what we have in Jesus is the most valuable thing we will ever have. Will you join with me as we sing together?
want to say a word of thank you to Casey for stepping in for me last week. The whole Mills family got a 24-hour bug that hit at 7 a.m. Sunday morning. And so she got about an hour and a half warning that she was going to be preaching. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for her. I'm deeply grateful for the Holy Spirit showing up. And, um, and we feel great this week. So it's good to be back. We're in a sermon series on Genesis, and we are starting to speed up because the story is going a little bit faster and is giving us more detail. Now, some of you at this point are feeling cheated because I told you in the beginning that we were going to do Genesis story by story. And what I mean by that is we're going to take the broad arc and hit the high points of the story to get through the broad um, picture of what Genesis is telling us. Here's the problem. If we actually went story by story with all the details of Genesis, we would be in Genesis throughout the rest of 2022. And what happens then is that you get so focused on the trees, you miss the forest and you miss the the story in the picture. And what I'm trying to give you is the forest of Genesis so that you have in your head the outline of what Genesis teaches. And probably at some point, I'm going to go back and do a sermon series on Abraham and a sermon series on Jacob because there's plenty there to preach on. But what we're going to do today is we are going to focus on the next person in the covenant. So fast recap. God created the world to be good, to be his dwelling place. Genesis 3, all of that got broken. The people were exiled from the garden, and there were these these broken pieces that played out, um, the broken relationship between man and man, human and human, the broken relationship between human and God, the broken relationship between humanity and the earth, all of that gets played out in the next chapters. We have Cain and Abel, the first murder, and then we have the story of God wiping the earth clean with the flood in order to kind of, in a sense, start over. And then after that, we have the first the first inkling of God's new plan after the flood is that he zeroes in on one person. And this person is the bearer of the covenant. And the promise is, I will bless you and through you the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will make of you a great nation. That was Abraham. And so we had a a sermon on Abraham. And then the covenant passed through to Abraham's son, Isaac. So we had a sermon last week. It was on Isaac and Rebekah. And then the covenant passes through Isaac. But this time there are twins, and it's only going to pass to one of the twins. And so this sermon is going to be on the next person in that line of the covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was a twin. When Jacob's mother, Rebekah, was pregnant, it says in the scriptures that the two children warred within her womb, which sounds terrible for anyone who has ever been pregnant. I love it when the Bible gets euphemistic. The the two children warred within her. She cried out to the Lord, and the Lord told her, two nations are in you, and the elder will serve the younger. Now, this is very important because what it means is God has already chosen the person through whom the covenant will pass, and it's not who you would expect. In this culture, there is a tradition called primogenitor, which means the oldest son gets everything. The oldest son gets everything because they don't want sons battling after a father's death, and so to keep inheritance from being divided, they gave the oldest son everything, and then everyone else was a servant of the oldest son. And so God, in this part of Genesis, says, primogenitor, shmimogenitor, we are going to pass the covenant to the younger son. 
And so when the twins are born, Esau comes out first, is the firstborn, and it says he's named Esau because he was red and hairy, which one of my professors, uh, when he was preaching on this, he said, <laughs> he said, this is one of those verses where everyone has so much scripture on art around their house, no one ever cross-stitches that on a pillow. He was like, I want someone to cross-stitch me a pillow that says, behold, he is red and hairy. And they named him Esau. So Esau came out, he was red and hairy. And then Jacob came out grasping his brother's heel, holding his heel, and so he was named Jacob, the one who grasps, the one who holds. And when they grow up, Isaac is, favors Esau, the older. Rebekah favors Jacob, the younger. Now, we don't know if uh, Rebekah told Isaac about what God had told her. I assume so. We're not told that in the text. And because we're not told it, we don't really know what Isaac knows going into this. All we know is Isaac, in all of his actions, prefers Esau. Um, Isaac is fully ready, fully prepared to pass everything down to Esau because that's how everyone did it at the time. And so, what we have set up here is this uh, idea. God is going to go against custom. God's going to do his own thing. We don't know why. We can assume God knows something about Jacob and something about Esau, but we don't know why, other than God has a reason for not doing the normal thing and going with the older son. And so with that setup, we go into three core stories that tell us about the relationship between Jacob and Esau, and I think tell us a lot about the nature of the covenant. So the first story is this. This is the one that I read to you. This is when the boys are grown up. Esau is um, a huntsman. He's out hunting in the fields. He's out working up a sweat. Jacob works around the house, and so he is good at the household crafts. He is good at cooking. And it says, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Now let's just pause there. I kind of think Jacob was joking here, because literally the idea of birthright versus bowl of stew, it's like if you walked up to me and you're like, that cupcake looks great, and I'm like, give me your bank account and you can have it, right? Like there's no comparison. Um, so then what he says, Esau says, I'm about to die of what used to me is a birthright. Jacob says, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. There's one more line, but I want to talk about this before we get to this last line, because the scripture actually tells us how to interpret the story. Now, I realize some of you in this story feel sorry for Esau, because you are taking him at face value when he says, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright? Y'all, if you can say, I'm about to die, you're not about to die. He was literally in his home camp. His mother was in the next tent. There is plenty of food. It's not that he was about to die. It's that he didn't want to go find food somewhere else, and what was in front of him was so enticing that he was willing to give everything else away. So literally, it's pretty much as if 
You walked into my office and saw some Crave cupcakes out there. And you're like, oh my gosh, that cupcake looks so good. And I'm like, mm, deed to your house and it's yours. And you're like, deal. What good is my house if I do not have cupcakes? And we, we struck a deal and you gave me the deed to your house? It's not a deed, it's a title or something. Whatever, you gave me your house and I gave you a cupcake. That's about what is being described here. And the reason I know that that's what's being described here is that the last line of that story is Esau despised his birthright. So the Bible is telling us how to interpret the story. Esau despised his birthright. This is our first clue as to about what God saw in Jacob that he did not see in Esau. Esau does not value what is valuable. Esau does not value what is valuable. I do not let my children play with real things that can be breakable because they do not know what they are worth. There was one time uh, Annabelle came in and she said, Daddy, I got you a present. And she holds up my engagement ring that she had somehow gotten out of my bedside drawer. I don't let her play with that because she would play with it and then she would flush it down the toilet for all I know. She does not value what is valuable, which means you can't trust her. Those who, people who do not value what is actually valuable cannot be trusted with valuable things. Esau does not value his birthright. He sold it for a bowl of stew. Jacob does value very deeply, and we can assume that his mother has told him what she heard from God at this point, does value very deeply what he sees his brother has. That's the first hint we see, so let's go to the second story. The second story muddies the water a little bit, because the second story is not nearly as straightforward with what should have happened. The second story that we have is when Jacob not only gets his brother's birthright, but steals his blessing as well. Now, in this culture, the blessing was more than just nice words. Isaac was getting to the end of his life. He was ready to bestow his patriarchal blessing upon his oldest. This means that Isaac was totally on board with the primogenitor. He was planning to give everything to his oldest son. Either he didn't know or didn't care what God had said, he wanted to bless his oldest son. And the blessing, the speaking of the blessing, was in that culture um, an act that couldn't be taken back. So when you, in, in, the, in Genesis 1, when God spoke and created, that was the idea of the words. The words of blessing were so powerful that when a person spoke them, that he actually created this new reality. And you can't take it back once you do it. And so... Isaac calls his son. Here's what it says. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, this is 27, Genesis 27, so that he could not see, he called his elder son Esau and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, see, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take your bows and weapons, your quiver and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. Then prepare for me savory food such as I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may bless you before I die. So he tells Esau to go out and hunt game. Rebecca is listening at the door, and Rebecca knows what God has said. And we can only imagine that this is Rebecca's way of trying to be obedient to God, but she devises a plan, and Jacob goes right along. She kills an animal they already have, she prepares it, 
And then she calls Jacob and she says, you go in and get your blessing, that blessing instead of your brother. And Jacob says, but he's going to know. I don't smell like Esau. I don't feel like Esau. And his mother says, no, 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 we can do this. She puts him in Esau's clothes. She puts animal skins on his arms so that he feels like Esau. And he goes in and Isaac falls for it and is deceived. And because Isaac is deceived, he gives his patriarchal blessing to Jacob, the younger. And then Jacob leaves the room and Esau walks in. And this is where the story gets muddied. Listen to these words. This is starting with verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He also prepared savory food. He brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father sit up and eat, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him, and blessed he shall be. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? He has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've already made him your Lord. I've given him his brothers as servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, father? Bless me, me also, father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. How many of you feel sorry for Esau right now? Like a fair, right? The way that that story is told to us in the scripture evokes our sympathy for Esau. And this is why this gets to be a complicated story. These are real people. These are not black and white. And you rarely get a situation, especially in a family squabble, where one person is entirely in the right and one person is entirely in the wrong. And what we have here is a picture of Esau being wronged by the deception of his brother. And let's not forget, deception was not something that was brought into the garden by God. Deception was something that was brought into the garden by the serpent. And we have Jacob using the tricks of the serpent to try to achieve God's goals, and in so doing, hurting his brother to the heart. Esau lifts up his voice and weeps. Now, in this story, the Bible does not interpret us for us. And so you can take different interpretations. There are plenty of people who will read this and will defend Jacob, as that was what God wanted him to do. There are plenty of people who will read this and will not. The Bible does not close this door for us. What I want you to get out of this is that this is where the muddy waters get muddied on who this guy Jacob is and why on earth God picked him over Esau. Because it is not just that Jacob is a good, upstanding, righteous man. 
If that were the case, it would be a whole lot easier. Jacob's a weasel. (laughs) He's sly. He's tricky. He lies to get what he wants. What on earth did God see in Jacob? And let's be clear. Let's be clear. Genesis 3 was when lying came into the world. Genesis 4 was when murder came into the world, and it was between two brothers. When one brother became jealous of the other, and we're almost getting a replay of that story here. One brother is jealous of the other because the other literally lied to steal his blessing. It's as though Abel had gone and taken Cain's sacrifice and ruined it, and that's why God didn't like it. That's about what's being set up here. It's not an innocent victim. It is somebody who has caused the discouragement of his brother and set himself up in another potentially Cain and Abel situation in a world that is still marked by Genesis 3. The very next verse, Esau knows that his father's days are limited and so plans after his father dies to kill his brother because that's going to fix the problem. One birthright now, Jacob. Jacob hears of the plan, and so he flees. And he runs for his life with nothing on him except for his skin. And he goes to his mother's family, which was the same place that Abraham was from. So Abraham was from Mesopotamia. When Abraham came, he left his family behind. And the stories we've seen so far are people going back and getting wives Rebecca came from Abraham's family. Rebecca left back here a brother, Laban. And so Jacob runs, flees for his life, to go live with Laban. Now there's a whole lot of chapters in here that we're going to kind of skim over because he spends 14 years living with and working for Laban. The things that you need to know about what happens in this exile time, in this this, time, Uh, time away from home. The first thing that happens is that he finally meets his match and he gets what's coming to him. So if you remember from last week, Laban is not the most upstanding character in the whole Bible. Jacob finally meets someone who is trickier than he is. And here's what happens. Jacob goes and he becomes a part of Laban's household and he starts working and he falls in love. He falls in love with Rachel who is so beautiful. And he says, give me your younger daughter in marriage. And Laban says, of course, work for me for seven years and I will give you my younger daughter in marriage. And Jacob does and he works for seven years and then he marries and he has a wedding night. And the next morning he discovers that it was the wrong sister. Which first of all, you didn't notice. But second of all, he goes to Laban and he goes, you gave me the wrong sister. This is Leah. And Laban says, did I? Is that what we promised? Really? Okay. Work for me for another seven years and you have her sister also. So you can see this is where everyone is just loving it because Jacob's finally getting what's coming to him, right? He's finally getting outwitted and outslide and outtricked and all of that. And nobody feels sorry for him at all because also you didn't notice. Um... He marries, at this point, he marries two wives, he has two concubines, he gets very, very wealthy um, and begins, because God is blessing him, right? So he begins to get flocks and herds and all of the things that are the accoutrements of a person of wealth at the time. So that's the second thing I want you to notice about his time away. 
He grows in wealth and in power and in blessing and in abundance without touching anything that is Esau's. Do you notice that? He grows, he is blessed without anything that was Isaac's or is Esau's. Because you know what? If God wants to bless a person, he doesn't need to use our common, ordinary means of inheritance to do it. That's one of the reasons that when I read the story, I don't know for certain that God intended Jacob to steal his blessing because I don't know that God needed that patriarchal blessing to bless this man. I think God was intending to bless him all along. And I see that because in these 14 years away, he grows in blessing. And he has all these flocks and all these herds and all these servants. He has 11 sons, which is an extraordinary mark of blessing at that age. And he finally comes to the day where he decides it is time to go home and face Esau. And so he starts going back, and he starts this journey back, and he is terrified. He's terrified. Imagine if Abel had run away in that field stayed away for 14 years, and then decided that the day had come that he wanted to come back and face Cain. That's about what's happening here. So Jacob is so terrified, he divides all of his um, people into three different camps, (laughs) so that if Esau kills one of them, he doesn't lose everything, and then he starts sending gifts ahead of him. And by gifts, I mean he sends everything he has. Everything he has. This flock, and then this flock, and then this flock. And all of them, when they meet Esau, they're to say, they're to bow down and say, these are gifts for my Lord. We are your humble servants. Translation, please don't kill us. And so he just keeps sending these, and he keeps sending these. And there's one night, this is Genesis 32, there's one night where he has sent everything ahead, and he is by himself on a riverbank in the middle of the night. And this is where the story gets very enigmatic. Because it literally says, a man came and wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. Well, that's random Genesis. And it doesn't say an angel came. It doesn't say God came. It says a man came. But then, as they are talking together, it became, becomes clear that this is at the very least a divine agent because the man says, you have wrestled with God and man. And so this image of of Jacob wrestling with God all night long. And what happens in the wrestling is he gets injured. He's injured in his hip. And it's an injury he'll carry with him the rest of his life. But even the injury, he does not let go. He doesn't let go. He wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles. And finally, as the sun is rising, the man says, let me go. The sun is rising. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And we hear in those words an echo of the desperation we heard in Esau's voice, don't we? I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man says, Your name shall be Israel, for you have striven with God and man and overcome. And he blessed him. And Jacob, now Israel, rose the next morning walked into the, what was apparently forgiveness of his brother, and lived the rest of his life with a limp and a blessing. Now this, I think, is the most important story of all, because I think this shows us the heart of why God chose Jacob. 
It is clear so far God did not choose Jacob because he is perfect, because he is not. God did not choose Jacob because he is all righteous, because he's not. I think what we see in this enigmatic story is that what Jacob has is staying power. It's a refusal to let go. Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob was wounded and kept wrestling with God. Jacob neared the daybreak and kept wrestling with God. And Jacob refused to walk away from God until God fulfilled his promise to bless him. Jacob valued what was valuable, valued it so much that he would not give up. Now, I want to say a word here. Friends, if you don't know what it's like to wrestle with God, you will. Just wait. There are parts of the faith life that are just wonderful, and they're, they're beautiful, and they're happy, and they're joyful, and there are parts of the faith life that are hard. The first time this story stuck out at me was when I was in my 20s, and my friends were leaving the Christian faith left and right for what seemed to me at the time very good reasons, and I was wrestling because I didn't want to leave, but I couldn't argue my way out of it, and I was wrestling and wrestling, and I'll tell you what, there was a big temptation that all of this will be easier if I just stop wrestling and walk away. And that was when I read Genesis 32. And probably not for the first time, but that's the first time it stood out to me. And I knew in my heart of hearts what it felt like to wrestle with God. And what Genesis 32 said to me was, don't stop wrestling. And since then, becoming a pastor, I have seen this in so many people. I had a mother once tell me she was praying for her son, but it was so exhausting to keep praying because she didn't see anything happening. And she said, Meredith, my life would be so much easier if I just didn't believe in God. (laughs) If I didn't believe that there was a, a purpose, if I didn't believe my prayers did anything, life would be so much easier. And I looked at her, and we read Genesis 32, and I said, don't stop wrestling. Don't stop wrestling. I'll tell you what. I've talked to other people who are not going through hard seasons of life. They're going through good seasons of life. And their comfort and their affluence and the joy of the season has highlighted how sometimes inconvenient church can be. Because let's face it, it's a whole lot easier to get brunch on a Sunday morning than to come to church. And there are times when coming to church is wrestling and much less pleasurable than other things we could be doing. And friends, that is when Genesis 32 says, don't stop wrestling. Don't stop trying. Don't stop showing up. Don't let go of God, because what God has offered you is infinitely more valuable than a comfortable, comfortable, inconvenient Sunday morning. What God has offered you the life, the blessing, the presence of God what God has offered you is your birthright. And when we leave the wrestling and walk away, we sell our birthright for the bowl of stew that the world offers. And we do not value what is actually valuable. Jacob valued God. Jacob valued God so much that he refused to let go. 
Jacob valued God so much that he refused to walk away even when he was limping. Jacob valued God so much that he received the blessing he was asking for. And he became the next patriarch, the next bearer of the covenant in the story God was telling. Friends, next week we're actually going to start a different series. We're still in Genesis, don't worry. We're still in Genesis, and actually we're going to go into Exodus after this because the stories are going to bridge. But we have reached the end of God working through individuals. What's going to happen after here is that the covenant is going to pass to 12 brothers who are then going to become the 12 tribes of Israel, who are then going to become the nation. And what we see in the next chapter is the people of God together being the bearers of the covenant, which would then bring salvation into the world. And when those people thought about which story they should take their name from, they went to this one. I'd just like to point out to you that it didn't have to be that way. Abraham was a lot more sympathetic as a character. Isaac means laughter. They could have called themselves the Isaacs. They could have called themselves the Abrahamites. They could have called themselves anything. But they chose their name from this story. The ones who wrestle with God and refuse to let go, even if the wrestling gets hard. And because of that, they might limp, but they are still blessed. And because of that, Israel bore the covenant and the blessing, which then became extended to the ends of creation in the body of Christ. Friends, we got all kinds of different people in this room. we got all kinds of different stories. We have all kinds of different places you are in your faith. And some of you are going to hear this message right now, and it doesn't speak to you, and that is fine. I want you to keep it in your back pocket, because the day is going to come when you start wrestling. The day's going to come when you start wrestling. And when that day comes, I want you to remember Genesis 32. And I want you to remember who you are named for. The new Israel. The new blessing. You are named not for people who are perfect, because you're not. You're named not for people who are altogether righteous, because you're not. You are named for people who don't give up. Who don't let go because they know what they have in God. And therefore, they value it. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. You've, you've extended yourself to us. You've offered yourself to us. You've invited us into your story. You have blessed us in blessing upon blessing upon blessing. You have given us so many good things. And we confess to you right now that there are times we have been Esau instead of Jacob, and we have sold our birthright for a bowl of stew because, boy, that bowl of stew tasted good. And so, God, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for when we have not valued what is valuable. Forgive us for when we have not held tight to what you have given to us. Forgive us when we have walked away instead of finishing the night. Forgive us. Give us the staying power 
to stay with you until the blessing comes. This we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we say together the prayer our Lord taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, this is the point in our service that we call the offering. The offering is all of you. It is what you bring financially to the gifts of God. It is what you bring in your prayers, and your presence, and your gifts, and your service, and your witness. It is an offering of your whole life to the work of God. And so we give you the next few moments to offer yourself. You can come and pray at the altar rail if you would like. You can pray in your seat. If you have a tangible gift to bring, you can leave it on the altar rail. You can also give online at wumc.com. But however you give yourself, don't miss these moments because the world's about to start and the noise is about to start and you only have a few more minutes in the sanctuary this morning. And so however you are called, come. Offer yourself to God who has offered the most valuable thing you will ever have to you. <laughs> 